Well, good morning. Welcome to Epic. My name is Tim Jones. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we are so glad that you are here with us today. Today, we are in the conclusion of our series, our two-part series called uh, Crossroad. And last week, as Trent mentioned for Easter, uh, we all have encountered crossroads in our lives at some point. And uh, a crossroad is simply a time or uh, intersection in our lives where we have to make a decision of which road that we have to take in our lives. And so there are many crossroads in our lives. There are educational ones, vocational ones, uh, relationships, uh, ones that deal with our health, and then also uh, our faith. And so uh, sometimes these crossroads can lead us to good places, and sometimes they can lead us to detours, or some of them can take us to bad places. And last week, Trent uh, shared with us one of his biggest crossroads in his life, which was this. It was to embrace his baldness or to do the comb over. Yeah, that was his greatest crossroad. <laughs> no, it wasn't. But he did share that last week, and I thought, man, I got to use that this week. But anyways... Um, we're glad he chose to embrace his baldness, aren't we? So, but seriously, uh, I'm curious, by a raise of hands, how many of you uh, feel like you're at a crossroad in your life right now, whether that's in your education, your work, your health, your relationships? Raise your hand. Hi. Yeah, there's tons of us. You're not alone. So thanks for doing that. And so last week, we also learned that all of us share a common crossroad. And so last week we learned that Christ's resurrection puts all of us at a crossroad where we have to make a decision of whether to follow Jesus or not. And after looking at several uh, historical crossroads that led to Jesus' resurrection, uh, there are 20 of you who put your faith in Jesus for the very first time last week and decided to follow. And that was amazing. So, and then there are about 139 of you who decided to get back on track with God. And so that was awesome. We're so happy for you, and we are praying for each one of you. Well, today, as... Uh, uh, as Matt already mentioned, today we are going to look at what happened after the resurrection. And the reason that we're going to look at what happened after the resurrection is because I can't think of a greater time in history or at a crossroad that we are all at within our society uh, because there's such a great attack upon your faith, your children's faith, and then also those of you who are considering faith uh, today. And because of social media and the internet and so many different outlets that we have in our lives, uh, there is an attack upon faith. For instance, just recently, um, th this happened in our world. Uh, there was, uh, there's the famous cathedral, uh, Notre Dame, uh, that recently uh, was damaged by a heavy accidental fire, okay? And as the people of France literally were watching this uh, and part of their national identity going up in flames um, and they were singing Ave Maria, uh, some of them who had gathered there because they were trying to get this fire un under control that took out the middle section of Notre Dame, um, people started to take shots at their faith. Uh, a professor at Harvard said this online while this was happening. The building was so overburdened with meaning that its burning feels like an act of liberation. Whew. Man, 
Really? That's the first thing you're going to say as millions of people in France are watching their national identity in one of these buildings go up? And you're going to say that to millions of Catholics who are hurting because it means so much and what uh, the building represents? But it gets worse. Rolling Stone magazine said this, For some people in France, Notre Dame has also served as a deep-seated symbol of resentment, a monument to a deeply flawed institution in an idealized Christian European France that arguably never existed in the first place. True. I mean, when did Rolling Stone become the voice of the people, you know? And all this said within 24 hours of the accident. I mean, can you believe that? But unfortunately, we can. Because that's what's happening in our culture, and it's becoming the norm. And as soon as something like this happens, people fire off their opinions on social media, and they take shots, and they cry out from social media, and they cry out from our lecture halls and our colleges and our universities without any regard to those who are hurting in the moment, and they speak as if they speak for everyone. And this is happening so much within our society. And unfortunately, there has been a trend, a growing trend over the last 10 years that you may not be aware of. And so over the last 10 years, uh, just shortly after 9-11, a group about four years after 9-11, calling themselves the New Atheists, uh, started to write books, and they put blame not on Islam, but they put blame on all religions. And so they sold millions and millions of books, and they appeared at uh, tons of different lecture halls, and they spoke thousands of times, and some of their stuff is on social media and everything. And uh, not only do they take a shot at all religions, but most often they take a shot at Christianity and more specifically, the Bible. Because if they can take out what seems to be the Bible, they feel like they can take out the foundation of the Christian faith. Because for so long, Christianity has stood on the Bible. And so, uh, although their arguments aren't anything new, and these arguments have surfaced over and over and over again, because our society and our culture is so driven by social media where you have to make a point within seconds, when someone is watching that, it convinces them where it starts to create a, a moment of doubt in their lives. And they sound good. I mean, they can stand toe-to-toe with some of the uh, Bible scholars out there and make them look silly, and, you know, unfortunately, that's hurt at times, but Bible scholars can also do the same thing to them, but they'll get their stuff out as well. And so you have these moments on social media where they make these points and people start to buy into it and start to doubt and start to wonder, is the Bible really trustworthy? Is it really reliable? It's the reason that some people have actually left the church, And it's the reason that some of your friends won't come to church. And it's the reason that some of you are considering right now of leaving the church. Because if they can take out what seems to be the Bible as your foundation of faith, then what is your foundation? And if this trend continues to happen, who's going to be hurt the most are the future generations because they will be left at a crossroad of what is their foundation of faith. And so I think we need to examine that today. 
And I think we need to look back at the first century to help us out and see what supported their foundation of faith. Because at the time, they only had the Old Testament when Jesus was alive. And so what was the foundation of their faith? What did they stand on for 400 years before Christianity became the major religion, the official religion of Rome? And it's a question that we must answer today because it has the power. It has the power to save the foundation of your faith and to set things right. And so today, that's where we're going to be heading, and that's the answer that we're going to be seeking uh, today as we look into what the book of Acts has to say about that. So if you would, if you have your Bible or your smartphone device, uh, please turn to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to be flying. I'm going to summarize like four chapters today and cover a lot of ground. So if you don't have a Bible, always feel free to have one uh, from the back as our gift to you. And then I would love for you to read these four chapters. I would love everyone to read these four chapters. You can get our spiritual growth challenge that will help you uh, go through those four chapters as an aid. But go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll give you a moment to get there. So as you turn there, let me set up the book of Acts. It was written by Luke, who was a medical doctor, okay? And he's a guy who hung out with the Apostle Paul and took many of the Apostle Paul's trips uh, to go ahead and tell everyone about the resurrection. And then he also knew James, the brother of Jesus. And what would you have to do to convince your brother that you're God? Well, maybe a resurrection, uh, but literally. And so uh, he knew James. He knew many of the first eyewitnesses because he, uh, you may be familiar with his name, wrote the gospel account of Luke. And so Luke wrote this account that was the most detailed account of Jesus' life, the one that's most often at Christmas time or used at Christmas time the most often because it has so many details. And so he goes on to write the book of Acts because he's writing this for a friend who wants all the details. I wasn't there. Tell me all the details. So Luke, being a medical doctor, doesn't leave any stone unturned. And he gives us precisely what we would want a medical doctor to do in our own lives. He gives us so much precision in his research, and it speaks volumes, because he went, again, to hundreds and hundreds of people who saw all these things transpire because he wanted to go to the source of all things. So let's begin in Acts chapter 1, 1. So in my first book, this is Luke speaking, I told you, Theophilus, his friend, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So great transition statement. We see how these two books bridge. He's leaving the gospel account of Luke, and now he's introducing us to Acts, which um, happens, uh, what he's about to describe, everything that happened after the resurrection for the first 30 years of the church. And so Mr. Precision is working his craft. Verse 3, during the 40 days after Jesus suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Now, we might ask ourselves, like, why does Jesus need to prove, you know, that he's back from the dead? Well, we've got to remember that the Jewish leaders and the Romans, they had put Jesus to death. And the disciples and many of his followers, um, they were devastated. 
I mean, most of them had followed Jesus for three years of their lives and thought he was the Messiah, the son of God, and now he's dead at the hands of men? So not only are they like shocked, but they are now in disbelief. They don't believe in Jesus anymore. He was dead. And so many of them were hiding because if they usually go after the leader, then they're coming after the followers next. And so it was very important when Jesus came back from the dead that he showed to his followers that he was truly alive. And so I love how Jesus went about revealing himself in such a personal way to his followers. Many of his interactions early on that he showed himself to, to all these people were done in such a personal way. I want to share one example uh, with you. And so for Thomas, who was one of the 11 remaining disciples, um, he missed out on seeing Jesus with the other 10. And so then this happens. They tell uh, Thomas, hey, we just saw Jesus. And he's like, man, I wasn't there. And let's see what he says. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. And eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into my wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe my Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And so I could imagine every time someone ran into Thomas, Thomas would say, hey, let me tell you exactly what happened personally to me. You know, I imagine he would say, you know, I went from doubting to believing because I met the risen Savior. And that became part of his story. And he got the nickname Doubting Thomas. Let's continue to see how Luke records many of these interactions, but specifically what happens after the resurrection. And so after Jesus went back to heaven, uh, the disciples are camped out. They were told, wait for the Holy Spirit. And as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit, they're like, what do we do? Wait a second, there's 11 of us. Judas is no longer with us. Uh, We need a 12th guy. We've always been 12 guys. And so it's interesting, the criteria that they came up with to select a person to replace Judas. Picking up in Acts 1.21. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time that Jesus was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. So here's what we need to understand. Not only did Jesus have 12 disciples that followed him for a course of over three years, but he had a crowd, an inner circle that also followed him from the beginning, most likely. And they're saying, hey, we need to look at one of these who've been with us from the beginning and choose from there. But here's an interesting, uh, one of the most important criteria that they say about the person that they select. They say, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they weren't just looking for some guy who was like a good speaker. They weren't looking for like some bald guy who gets up here every Sunday uh, to speak. They were looking for a guy who had been an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection, just as they had seen Jesus as well. And they found that guy. And And Luke tells us his name is Matthias. And everyone knows Matthias. Everyone has seen him, saw him for those three years. And so now things pick up. 
So at this point, it's only been seven weeks. It's been seven weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It hasn't been seven years. It hasn't been 70 years. It's only been seven weeks since the Passover week and the death of Jesus. And so here's this another big festival in the Jewish culture that everyone has to leave with their homes from across the land and come back together to celebrate this festival. And as they're there in the capital system, uh, capital um, of Jerusalem, again, again, only being seven weeks removed for most of them, there's this huge wind that goes throughout the city and gets tons of people's attention. And the 12 disciples are given the Holy Spirit and 120 of Jesus's followers. So Jesus has appeared to more than 500 people and 120 of these people are now Christ's followers. And they all go throughout the city and start to proclaim what Jesus has done and the great miracle that they've seen. And so Luke tells us what happens next in Acts chapter two, verse six. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages and dialects being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. So everyone is shocked. I mean, they're like, hey, we know these guys. I mean, they're from Galilee. They smell like fish. I mean, we know what Galileans look like, you know? And now they know our language, they know our dialects. How can this be? This is unbelievable. And at this moment, Peter stands up in this very front crowd. He's the leader, and now he's about to speak. And just to let you know, like, we wouldn't choose Peter to be the leader. I mean, this guy had made so many mistakes in following Jesus. In fact, the night that Jesus was arrested, he denied knowing Jesus three times. And Jesus even warned him that you would deny me. And so why is Peter the leader? Well, after the resurrection, Jesus goes and finds Peter, who's on the side. And he tells them, you are not done. And some of you, you need to hear that today. Because you have a resurrected Savior who wants you to know that you are not done. There's always hope. There's always a place for you. And so Peter proves that. And so let's see what Peter says in front of all these people. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. So again, this is important. The people that were assembled in front of him were all across the land. They had just been there probably seven weeks prior. Many of them probably had seen Jesus be put to death or heard what had happened to Jesus. So they are not new to Jesus and what he had been doing for the past three years. But God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. And with the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him. You nailed him to a cross and killed him. And some of you in the crowd, you even said, crucify him, crucify him. But God, but God released him 
from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grips. And then Peter references one of King David's Psalms, which they would have all known that pointed to one day there will be a Messiah. They didn't know how it was going to work out, but he connects the dots for them and he connects them to, for them to take in what he is about to say next. And he says this, he says, God raised Jesus from the dead and we, the 120 of us, are all witnesses of this. And when the people heard this, they knew that guy, I know him. He's telling me what? That guy, he's, I, that guy would never lie to me. All 120, we have seen and heard this. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized. All this in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So repent simply means to change your mind. These people needed to change their mind about who Jesus was and put their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Then they needed to get baptized to outwardly show of the inward decision that they had made about Jesus. And 3,000 people that day turned from their unbelief in Jesus and became Christ's followers. And don't miss this. This is so important. The very first message that was ever given publicly, that was ever given publicly after the resurrection of Jesus was not about one of Jesus' teachings. It was about the resurrection of Jesus. So let's continue. So now Peter and John, I mean, they're bold. They're going around Jerusalem. They're preaching and they're teaching. Everyone sees them. They're like, why aren't those guys hiding? I mean, they've been hiding. I mean, what's going on here? And they're going around teaching and preaching. They go to the temple. I mean, that's like the territory of the enemy, the Jewish religious leaders. And so they go there one day. They see this guy who's begging, who's been lame from birth. The guy says, hey, give me money. They didn't have any money. And Peter heals the guy. This guy gets up and he starts jumping around and there's a commotion. Everybody's like, what just happened? You know, what happened to this guy? And they see this guy running around Peter and John all excited, praising God. And so they surround Peter and John and they ask him, what has happened? And Peter, he can't resist. He can never resist. Acts 3, 13, for it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant, Jesus, by doing this, healing this man. He gives them who has done this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate. Despite Pilate's decision to release him, you rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. Some of you shouted Barabbas instead of Jesus. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this fact because he, the one who came back to life from the dead has stood before us. And so what was the foundation of Peter's faith? Why was he so like, where did he get his hope from? Why was he so confident and so bold? He would tell the crowd that the foundation of his faith was an event. 
He saw a man die. He saw a man come back to life from the dead. And so that's where he got his confidence. So what should be the foundation of our faith? Where should we get confidence when people attack us and our faith and about Christianity? And Peter would say it's the resurrection. The resurrection is the foundation of faith. And the New Testament supports it. These written accounts, Luke has done an amazing job of capturing everything and interviewing everyone. The New Testament supports the resurrection. So let's continue. Now, this wasn't the best place. Again, like I said, for Peter to be preaching, he never thinks. He only acts, if you know Peter. And so he's on temple grounds. The Jewish religious leaders are like, what is this clown doing? You know. And so they go up to him. So picking up in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, same captain who arrested Jesus the night before they crucified him. And some of the Sadducees, some of the same religious leaders who put Jesus to death, and they arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. And so the next day, Peter and John are brought before the same religious leaders that had put uh, persuaded Pilate to crucify Jesus. Uh, here's you know Caiaphas, the high priest, who was the same high priest that was the guy who orchestrated and plotted the murder of Jesus through the Romans. And so he's there presiding over this whole thing. So everyone knows how this is going to go down. They know it's not good for Peter and John. It's going to go poorly, or at least that's what everyone thought. So Acts chapter 4, verse 7 they brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this, the healing of this lame man that they all knew? Now, imagine if you were like um, summoned before the U.S. Supreme Court, okay? And you're only summoned the night before uh, you had to speak in front of the justices, you know? What would you say to some of the most brilliant men and women of the time? What would you say in front of all of their clerks and all of their support people and all these legal experts of the law? You know, these guys are fishermen. And so here they are being brought before this council. And as they enter into the uh, chambers, they can't even read some of the writings that are on the walls. And so what would they say? What would you say to them? Well, here's what Peter says. Verse eight, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Like really, Frank, you're in the audience. Come on up here, all right? Everybody knows Frank. He was lame, okay? Like literally, okay? And he was crippled. And now he's standing right next to me. So do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel, because you guys can get the word out, I know it, that this man who had been lame from birth was healed by, and you want to know the name? By the powerful name of, and everyone say it together, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you, and I'm sure he pointed at Caiaphas at that moment, and all the top dogs crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. I bet in that moment, you couldn't hear a pin drop. I 
bet some of those guys were having heart attacks. Because not only did they just drop the name of Jesus on them, okay, but where did these guys get their boldness to speak like that, to speak to us like that? Let's find out what they did. So the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. He also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. And so why were they so amazed with these guys' boldness? I mean, most people would be on their knees begging for mercy. I mean, Peter and John knew what these guys could do. They had seen them put Jesus to death. These guys knew they had seen, uh, Peter and John had seen them put Jesus to death. And they knew that these guys knew that they could put them to death as well. And they were hiding. They weren't on the radar. So why are these guys speaking up and so bold? And I think that threw them like in a frenzy. I mean, they had no idea what to do because of what is said next. So it goes on to say that they kind of huddled together and like, uh, what do we do? You know, and they kind of looked at each other and say, well, tell them not to use Jesus name. Okay, uh, we'll do that. And so sure enough, they come back in and they say, all right, you know, we can't punish you guys because obviously here's Frank. I mean, who can deny Frank standing right here? I mean, he's a miracle. We all know him. We've known him since birth. He's been in the temple all these years begging for uh, food and money and everything. And so, guys, stop using the name of Jesus. <laughs> and I love what these guys say in response to that. I love what Peter and John say back to them. And it's the reason that they are unafraid. They say, but Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? And here it is. Here's the reason that they were unafraid. We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. They saw Jesus die. They saw him come back to life. The foundation of their faith was in an event. It was the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus appeared to them and to over 500 people, and they all saw him. And they all saw what he did and heard him and talked to him and ate with him, and he was alive. So what do you do when you see a dead man alive? You're fearless. You're fearless. You're bold. No one has ever come back from the dead. And so that's the foundation of their faith, and it could withstand any assault on them because they had seen the risen savior and they saw his wounds in his hands. They had seen the risen savior with wounds in his feet. They had seen the risen savior with a wound in his side because Jesus came back to overcome death so that our sins could be done, done away with and paid in full because he wanted to do that for everyone, to anyone who would believe. And that's what he did. That was the foundation of Christianity. That is the foundation of Christianity today. So if we had Peter right here in the room today and we asked him, you know, what would you do with all the doubts about Scripture or doubts about the Bible, um, I think he would have an answer for them. I mean, what would we do? What would we say is the foundation of our faith? 
Are we going to allow someone to cast some doubt, some guys who spend a lot of time in their rooms writing books and everything and can come up with clever ideas and everything that have, been, that have frankly been answered in the past? There's nothing new. Or are you going to put your faith and put your foundation of faith in the one who came back from the dead for you to be your savior? So if Peter were here today, I think this is how he would answer them. I think he would say this. This is what I wrote down. I think if he were here, this is how he would respond. Peter would say, you know what? The Bible had nothing to do with my decision to follow Jesus. I lived with Jesus for three years. When Jesus was arrested, I ran. When asked if I knew Jesus, I lied three times. Thank you, my fellow disciples, for recording that. <clears throat> I saw him die. In the moment, I lost all hope. I don't know what to believe. When the two women told us the tomb was empty, I still didn't believe them. Of course, though I was curious, I wanted to see for myself. And as John and I stood there at the empty grave, I didn't know what to believe. When Mary reported they saw Jesus, I still didn't want to believe. I spent three years following a man I thought was the Messiah. I wasn't going to believe because now I had to hide to protect my life or I would be next. But that night, as was our habit, I ended up at a safe house. We had a meal and the doors were locked as usual. And then Jesus appeared. The reason I believe what I believe is because of what I saw. I saw him alive. I heard him speak. I saw him more than once. He came after me. He told me I was not done. That's the reason for my hope. That's the reason for my boldness. My faith, my faith stands on the one who, was, who stood before me. That's why I spoke so boldly about him. See, the foundation of Peter's faith was the resurrection. And that should be the foundation of our faith as well because the New Testament supports it. And so there's always going to be someone who can cast doubts. I mean, seriously, we know that. There's always going to be someone who comes up with something. But our faith, our faith rests on a historical event where hundreds of eyewitnesses saw what happened. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Peter didn't have the complete Bible. He only had the Old Testament, which helped identify Jesus. And he went toe to toe and was bold before the New Testament was completed. And so his faith was based upon what he had seen and heard, the risen Savior. And so the question for all of us, for all of us, is what is the foundation of our faith? The foundation of our faith is what Peter has so eloquently said. It's what he had seen and heard, and we can't stop telling others because it is in the one we saw come back from the dead. 
And I've never seen anyone come back from the dead and show himself to be true. So will you today, instead of allowing little thoughts, little doubts to enter into your mind, make today the foundation of your faith the resurrection and stand on that and allow the scriptures to support that because that's what they do. And they make it so clear. Luke took such a great amount of detail to do that for us, for you, for those of us who need to hear. And so, with that foundation, as we revisit that foundation that supported the early church for 400 years and has continued to support Christianity throughout this whole time, today, will you make that your foundation as well? Now, here's what I want us to do with that, okay? At the beginning of the year, we challenge all of us to be praying for three people that we know need to come to Epic and hear about Jesus or for you to tell them about Jesus. And I hope today that you have found a boldness, a boldness to say, you know what? I need to be praying for people. Who in my life needs to hear this as well? And so we challenge everyone at the beginning of the year to be praying for three people. So how are you doing with that? If you haven't been doing that, would you begin to do that? Because someone needs you to be bold. Not bold in like, you know, just being a know-it-all and all those types of things, but bold in praying for them. And so would you take time to pray for them? Would you take time to look for opportunities to invite them? Would you look for time to be able to tell them about Jesus when it's appropriate? And so can we do that together? That's what the church did in the beginning because of what they had seen and heard. And everyone could not believe their boldness in doing that because their faith, their foundation was in an event and it was Jesus' resurrection. So here's how we're gonna close today. Today, um, for our generation's sake and for the next generation's sake and those of you who are considering faith, this is how we're gonna close. We're gonna close in prayer. And during that time, I want you just to carve out a little bit of time to say, you know what, Jesus, I just never had this crossroad nailed down. I did not realize that Christianity was solely based upon the resurrection. And today, God, I've been in, but today I'm making that the foundation of my faith and that scripture supports that. And I can believe the Bible because it is true. It is reliable. If there's a man who can come back from the dead, wow, I can believe it. And then would you begin to pray for those that you know, those people that um, maybe you've already been praying for and pray for them in this moment. Pray that they would come, that you would have an opportunity to speak to them about the risen Savior, your friends, your family members. And then for some of you who have been considering faith, maybe it just clicked today. And you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that there was such proof, that there were all these eyewitnesses to Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. And some small voice has said that to you today of what you exactly need to hear in such a personal way. I don't know that. Because that's the risen Savior speaking to you. And so would you make him your Savior today? So let's go ahead and close in prayer and talk to God. So Father, thank you so much for today, God. Thank you that you sent your son 
Jesus, that you showed without a doubt. We have so many written accounts of what you did. So many people could have denied you, could have written counterattacks and all those things, but no one was able to do that because you did the unspeakable, you did the miraculous. Over 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, God, Jesus, you came back from the dead. And there are thousands and thousands of churches that stand because of that. There have been millions and millions of people who have met you because you've spoken into their hearts. The early church saw it. And so today, our foundation is you, Jesus. Thank you. And Father, we pray right now for those that we know who need to hear this. God, give us opportunities to share this with them. Give us opportunities to invite. Some people need to warm up. Some people need to hear message after message. And so, Father, give us opportunities to invite to Epic. Give us opportunities to have good conversations. Conversations that are face-to-face because that's what you did. And there's someone here today, God, that they're ready. It's time. And they want to become a follower. If that's you, just say this to him. Just say these words. Talk to him within you. And say, dear Jesus, thank you for coming and dying on the cross for my sins. I believe you came back from the dead. I cannot refute how many people saw you. And so I'm yours today. I believe. Be my savior. Thank you. In Jesus' name. And so, Father, be with us today as we go out. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for being here, and we will see you next week. You won't want to miss it. We've got a new series that's beginning, and have a great Sunday.